If you like sports talk with absolutely no sports talk, welcome to the latest episode of the Just Not Sports podcast. This is the show where a couple guys who work in sports talk to the people who play and cover sports about anything they like, just not sports. On today's show, we will talk to longtime NBA writer and analyst Kelly Dwyer about his passion for Steely Dan and the connection the band has to his new website, The Second Arrangement. And we also do our duty on Just Not Sports. That's right, everyone. We are going to be the first and most likely only, at least that I know of, national show to give you a full and complete breakdown of Stefan Marbury's Chinese movie, My Other Home, a.k.a. the greatest basketball movie ever made. And you know Adam and I are going to be talking a lot about the Allen Iverson, Stefan Marbury, you know, back and forth, mano y mano acting masterclass. <laughs> Stick around. You do not want to miss that. I'm your co-host, Brad Burke. I'm a sports marketer in Chicago. And joining me, starting in Chicago, a longtime sports PR professional who has logged time with the University of Colorado, the Green Bay Packers, and many global sports brands. It's Adam Allard. Adam, what did you dress as for Halloween, my friend? Um, I didn't dress as anything, but during a pumpkin carving contest at work yesterday while holding a knife, I said I was OJ. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> That's horrifying. That is uh, that is horrifying. So Adam, too soon, too Adam, soon. Uh, when you said you were OJ, did you admit to being Khloe Kardashian's real father? <laughs> oh, that's interesting. I I don't believe I've heard that theory. Well, buddy, I tell you what, I know who has heard that theory. Reddit. I would just uh, take a deep dive <laughs> into some of those picture picture comparisons and see what you find. Also with us in a uh, you know hey serious moment in a, in a grieving uh, New York City. Uh, we were all uh, shocked to see the uh, terrorist incident happened this week. So uh, I will forego the uh, the goofy uh, parlance and just say Gareth Hughes, uh, how is everybody handling what what's happened? No, man, you know what? There's a great article in New York. Like, first of all, when it comes to that attack, I ride my bike to work a lot and I ride that path every single time I go to work. Every time I've ridden over it, I don't know, maybe a thousand times, like that section. I can picture it perfectly. And my condolences and it's a tragedy what happened um, and to all the victims. I'm so sorry. One of them actually went to Skidmore college where I went to school recent graduate. Um, there's so much of it. That's so sad and that bothers me. And as I said to my parents last night, like I will donate to a memorial if they want, I will, if they're closing it for the victims to dedicate it, I will ride around it. But when it comes to the guy who did it, like, fuck that guy. I'm going on with my life. And yeah. New York magazine wrote a great article tonight about just the speed with which New York moves on is kind of shocking. Like it was, uh, I mean like 
we were out with the kids last night trick-or-treating, like nothing happened at all. I was getting texts from people that said like, did you ride your bike today? Are you okay? I appreciated all of those, but I was, I was pretty blown away by the way that's just sort of like, Oh, that's awful. All right. Come on, kids. Let's go. It's picture time. You know, let's go get candy. Um, the West village was right there. The village Halloween parade went on as scheduled. You know, it's one like one of the best parts living in New York can be hard, but one of the best parts about it is just that, you know, it, it goes on really fast. So, uh, Thoughts, prayers, condolences to the victims and their families. But um, I don't know. One of my favorite parts is how quickly we move on. Yeah, well, I'll leave it at that, man. I, I think um, we're happy you're okay. I'm not gonna lie. I was go- I googled a couple images and saw, uh, you know, saw some of the first photos of like the bikers down, and that was the first thing I thought about. I was like, holy shit, Gareth rides a bike. <laughs> across Manhattan. And I actually I didn't want to be dramatic about it. I was just like, I was like, I'm not going to bother him. I'm sure he's okay. But it is one of those like staggering realities of, of, you know, just, just the, the state of worry. We all live in a global universe. So it sucks. No, it, let me just quickly say this. It was the first time that I, uh, I have deleted Facebook and Twitter off my phone and mm-hmm. we were out trick-or-treating if I had had them on my phone I actually would have done the the update like it's okay I'm okay uh like sort of social media announcement because I was getting enough text so I get the use of them for the first time in my life um at the same time I'm like spoiler alert my distraction has been a break from social media outside of Instagram and it's awesome so yeah (laughs) I'll, I'll say that so, well, as the guy who runs the Just Not Sports Twitter handle, fuck you, Gareth. And uh, let's <laughs> 20 hours and a week thanks, on that Brad. garbage. <laughs> uh, with that, let's take the open of the show and make it wide open. Anything in the world of the sports is fair game. Adam, I want you to start real quick because, guys, we're going to get into the Starberry movie, which we found a pirated version of. And. We have thoughts, but before then, with the, I guess, could we call Shaquille O'Neal the patron saint of Just Not Sports at this point? Uh, He was involved in a rap beef, and we feel obligated to be the authority on all matters Shaquille O'Neal rap. So, Adam, can you briefly break down what the situation is? And is it 1997? Uh, (laughs) Yes, there is a rapper... There is a rapper by the name of Big Shaq who made a Shaquille O'Neal diss track and Shaquille O'Neal has recently responded. I found this on multiple channels on Instagram because Gareth, I am also Instagram only and occasionally Twitter when Brad asks me. Um, But yeah, there's a back and forth between Big Shaq who clearly who obviously stole the name from Shaquille O'Neal. Shaquille O'Neal has responded in kind. And I have to say, this is the essence of hip hop uh, in the sense that it was, uh, I would describe it as a good natured competitive exchange between uh, one new school rapper and obviously uh, the big Aristotle himself responding in kind. 
Since I, you know, since I mentioned I run the Twitter, I jumped in on this online and uh, I posted. <laughs> no. Because uh, what's this guy's name? Michael hmm. Dapa? Sure. Let's say that's what his name I, is. Yeah. Big sh- this guy minutes. who's air quotes Big Shaq. I wrote, hey, man. Uh, Shaq is the real Big Shaq. All others are just copies, like the bootleg rap tapes made by the villain in Kazam. Kazam reference. <laughs> that must have hurt if, him. If he's going by Big Shaq, what is he like seven nine and five hundred <laughs> pounds? Like, I mean, like, <laughs> yeah, he better be like like Undertaker, the wrestler, if he's going to be doing or or, right. or or like yeah, you know, like Earthquake. I, l- let me just say this. First of all, Joe Reed, wherever you are in spirit, I want you to boot up this Shaq disc because Adam, it's a top fifteen Shaq rap song. Let's hear it. There's a lot of people that are named after me. Shaquille, Shaq. But keep in mind, it's only one big Shaq. It is I, the originator, the dominator, the creator. Don't you ever call your name Big Shaq. Last man who called himself Superman still ain't got no rings. Roadman Shaq. Find me scraping the black card. I got a lake in the backyard. I got gators, got snakes in the backyard. Superman on a dock in the backyard. Even got a safe in the backyard. Got a Rory Bentley in the backyard. I can tell when you spit. Roman Shack, you can never beat me. You're not really a factor. I'm just sitting here about to win. I agree. I agree. Yeah, dude, it's great. It's great. He he really nailed it. He used the guy's own beat behind him because Shaq's not going to pay royalties to this this mofo, this <laughs> pretender. And then here's what's even better. Besides the fact that the real Shaq destroyed, air quotes, Big Shaq with this rap disc, because I listened to the other guy's song and it was like barely a rap. And at one point in the rap, he says, I'm not even going to rap. I'm just going to talk. That's not rapping. That's not a diss track. That's just you being an ass. Like, call it. Spalding Gray, dude. You're yeah. monologuing. Yeah. You can't be the Spalding Gray of athlete rap beefs. That's already taken by Meta World <laughs> right. Peace. And so, like, the best part about it was <laughs> Dwight Howard. He Shaq wove in this awesome Dwight Howard diss, which is don't call yourself Big Shaq. Last man to call himself Superman still ain't got no rings. Mike drop. Brad, this made my week uh, and uh, I'm patting myself on the back a little bit here. This made my week because I was praying that I could deliver some Shaq news to you before you discovered it. You look, guys, it's hard to keep up on Shaq news when you're hiding in, a, in his garbage looking for <laughs> old bootlegs. <laughs> you know, it's tough. He also, he, he also hosted Jimmy Kimmel this week. Jimmy Kimmel out with a cold that has affected his entire family and an excellent opening monologue. The interviews, eh, not as great, but um, a good two great performances by Shaquille O'Neal this week. All right. Well, you know what? Moving on, because wide open, because this is mine, guys. A few months ago, the Stefan Marbury movie trailer came out. You know, it got some good run in the sports media, but in the Burke household and Brad's household, uh, this was like Last Jedi trailer level of excitement. You know, like I was real pumped up to see the Star Wars movie. Was this you and Prometheus? Yeah, basically, basically. And we, we have a spoiler for my distraction. It's called My Other Home. And it follows Starberry flaming out of the NBA, 
going to China, reinventing himself in China, maybe meeting a manic pixie dream girl uh, in China, and uh, <laughs> fighting Baron Davis, uh, who may or may not be playing Steve Francis. We're going to get into that. <laughs> I I got to say... No, not Steve Francis, by the way. <laughs> but we'll, yeah, we'll get into that. I got to say this. Guys, is this the best thing I've ever suggested us watch? Because I'm giving this two <laughs> resounding thumbs up this movie. Yeah, I sent you the link first. Uh, again, I want to take some credit here of <laughs> the link was first delivered by me. So you're welcome. Adam. I like that, Adam, you, by the way, I'm about to show the definition of white privilege here. Okay. Adam, you basically formatted the show and took care of all those links and ideas. Whereas I watched the movie and just want credit for that. I did what was ba <laughs> the bare minimum of what was asked of me. I have Jureen lowered expectations so much that just by doing the bare minimum, you guys will say Gareth really brought it this week. <laughs> yeah. Well, I want to say this. Guys. Yeah. I want to say this, <laughs> Adam, I want to start with you because all joking aside, yeah. Weren't you just shocked by the quality of this movie? It was great. Well, I started off with my role on the show is to be the cynical one. So during our text exchange, I started out with like, this is kind of unbearable or at the very least uncomfortable. And then there were a couple key appearances or moments in this movie that made me say, like I put my phone down. I almost always watch TV with phone in hand because that's what we do. Multitask. Right. And during this movie, there were two particular moments that made me set my phone down and really tune into this movie. Do we want to go like in a narrative, like linear fashion, or do we want to go right to the magnum opus moment of this, which Adam, I, I'm pretty sure I know where, one of those moments came from in this movie. Well, there you, know what, two, you know what? Here, get, get, let's build to it. Let's start. Let's start the beginning. There's a lot of awesome moments <laughs> along the way. <laughs> yeah. First of all, there's an opening voiceover scene, which I can only describe as maybe the second worst <laughs> opening voiceover behind the original Blade Runner. Yeah. It, it's yeah. <laughs> it, it basically sums up all of Starberry's career, which, okay, real quick, Adam, I got to ask you this. I totally forgot he yeah. was drafted by the Bucks. No, <laughs> same no. here. That was one of my notes. <laughs> yeah. And I no, looked it I, up. I looked it up. Do you know who he was traded for? He was traded for Ray Allen. And a number one draft pick. The Bucks like did pretty yeah. good in that trade. Yeah, not bad at all. I do remember that because it was on a family vi vacation in Wyoming, and I insisted that we were in a hotel that had cable so I could watch the NBA draft. And I followed Stefan Marbury since he was a Lincoln rail splitter and um, <laughs> in high school and Coney Island. He was the most, next to LeBron James, probably the most anticipated where is Stefan going to go announcement of all time? So I remember that very specifically him going to Georgia tech and then being drafted. Yeah. I mean, like, okay. So the whole opening is like, a, it basically runs down his entire career and it's like, I was drafted and everything was fine. And then I got to the Knicks. Well, I mean, that might be a little revisionist <laughs> history. Um, 
And then it, yeah. it, it posits it posits a universe, and I don't know if it's real or not, where his father dies while he's playing in a Knicks game. He never forgives the Knicks for letting him for, for letting him play the full game without his you know, without knowing his father's in the hospital having a heart attack. According to his Wikipedia, that did happen. His dad did have a heart attack in the Knicks game. Yeah, I mean look, this that this movie happen. seems like a confessional for sure. That did that did happen, and as in the movie, he actually did tell them, "Please don't tell my son," uh, because they wanted him to. He wanted him to continue the game. Oh, knowing this is autobiographical to this degree makes me love this movie even more. Okay, so this opening is all about that, and then it gets into how he gets to getting an offer to re, you know, resurrect his career in China. Gareth, you said you had some real thoughts about the, the voiceover or the VO, as we say in the biz, uh, of Stefan. So how did you think he carried this very crucial opening <laughs> 9 to 11 minute voiceover of his entire career and father's death? Yeah, so it's fun. I, I directed a voiceover session this afternoon before... Uh, as like I sent you guys a picture of me watching the movie as I waited for the talent to arrive. Usually what I and most people will try to tell people is, Hey, just keep it conversational. You know, like we're just sitting in a room together, having a conversation. That's how it should, it should feel. And it should sound. I don't think that Stefan Marbury succeeded in doing that. In his nine-minute VO that resembles the rhythm of my speech right now. So, uh, yeah, it's a tough listen, guys. I mean, like, this movie has some real pacing issues at the top. Let's be honest. There are multiple times when they show Stefan Marbury crying or eating Vaseline in apparent YouTube videos. Yeah, I Googled those. Those Those are real. And they are shocking. Well, here, so for Stefan to put them at the top of this movie, to me, and I'm being dead serious. I'm not being, jo- I'm not joking around. For Stefan Marbury, who clearly had final cut here. All right. For him to put, <laughs> for him to put <laughs> him eating Vaseline on YouTube and breaking down during an R&B song in the opening intro lays all his emotional cards on the table. And I was like, I'm in. This is not going to be entirely sanitized. It's going to be a little bit of a weird, raw journey down the Starberry rabbit hole. And guys, call me Alice. I dove deep. (laughs) Right. Right, Adam. Am I right? Um, No. You... It was a good start. I appreciate him being a, a perhaps a little bit self-deprecating, but throughout this movie, I would compare his portrayal of himself to Chris Kyle in American Sniper. There's certain parts of this story I just am not quite following. Chris Kyle was accused of making up a lot of his book that was then turned into a movie. I think that Stefan, once he got to China um, and joined the Beijing dunk Ducks, portrayed himself in an extremely flattering and positive light. Sure. 
I was going to say, like, if we wanted to save time on this conversation, just get into the Stefan Marbury aspect of it. If you've seen Hoosiers, you've pretty much seen everything from the moment he arrives in China <laughs> to the end. <laughs> so, Hey, Gareth. Hey, know, Gareth. I was like, never hey, would have compared When this was movie Baron Hoosiers, Davis in Hoosiers? Brilliant. You guys are way underestimating the appeal of this movie, and I will not stand for it. I will not <laughs> no, no, stand no, listen, for it. Hold on. <laughs> <laughs> but well, I'm just saying from a plot summary standpoint, um, the appeal of the movie, look, I will say this. I mean, cause we have lo- watched a lot of like YouTube garbage movies. Uh, the no, production value Brad is super I, high. Hold on just a second. Brad and I have yeah, watched a lot yeah, of Garrett. garbage yes. YouTube movies. <laughs> and I have Garrett, watched them watch on two. a phone in a cab <laughs> on YouTube. <laughs> so, But the production value on this movie was super high. Like they spent money on this movie. You guys are way underestimating the emotional pull of this movie, and I will not stand for it. I want to get into some of the plot, and we're going to reveal a lot of the appeal of this movie. All right, so he goes to China, he gets a a deal, and then it kind of like flips forward two years. I will say it's about as jarring of a time jump as like the final couple seasons of Lost. Like it's not, it's a little strange in terms of like what's happening and why they're like kind of skipping forward. But then he meets his, his manager, Chen, who I, you know, I think is the first Chinese manic pussy dream girl. Yeah. Yes. And that movie, th- look, that scene where she approaches him at the at the restaurant and she puts her number on the table and he's like, "No, I'm married or whatever." And I'm like, "Oh, wait, were you married? That that wasn't your sister. That was your actual son." <laughs> uh, and then uh, you know, she she he realizes that, like she's his manager. That scene was delightful. Like I was in in the movie at that point. Like Gareth, you have to admit, like that was a well-written scene, right? I actually thought that that scene and the reveal of her role and who she was was very well structured, not just from kind of a chemistry building standpoint, but also from a cultural standpoint, the part of the joke was he misunderstood that Chinese people put their last names first and first, like yes. there was, there was a cultural reveal. There was a plot reveal within the film and it revealed who he was as a person that he wasn't just going to China to get laid. I also, I would say there's a later scene when she and him are, are at this wall of a restaurant and he's like, see true champions. I know what it means to be a true champion. And she's like, what have you won? He's like high school. I laughed out loud on a train to that line because that's Stefan Marbury making fun of the fact that he's never won jack shit. And that's entirely what you don't expect from Stefan Marbury. I'm with Brad. I think that the whole thing is a self-aware mea culpa from him because I actually think that contrary to the reputation he got saddled with, he is one of the most nuanced self-aware athletes that I, of my lifetime where he can be known as this like ball hogging selfish point guard who then contrary to every other athlete of his time, releases $25 sneakers so you can buy them in the hood. And it's just like, that is an undeniably cool thing to do. And, you know, like thinking of other people and how, you know, and trying to give back in a very genuine way, like 
I don't know who saw that coming from Starberry. Like he, I think he is capable of surprising in a way that few athletes are. Yeah. And I think that's the whole theme of the movie that going to China really changed him. I don't know if we saw that transformation. I think it, on the other hand, yeah, one we of have the, to take some of that on faith. <laughs> yeah. So one of the more, one of the more dis I don't know, I wouldn't call it disappointing, but I would have liked to see, as you say, more nuanced is his transition into a less selfish player. Now he had a reputation in his later years with the Knicks as someone who was less selfish despite his um conflicts with Larry Brown and Isaiah Thomas. He definitely matured um as a player and a person in the NBA. I don't believe that he showed up to China and the Beijing Ducks after two years in China fully matured. I believe that some of the rivalry between him and his teammates, if indeed that was true, was probably deserved because as much as he is able to um, to poke fun at himself, I do probably think there was a certain uh, air, a certain swagger that he brought into the team that was intimidating or offensive um, in a culture that doesn't celebrate individualism. And I think probably during his time with the team, there was a transformation that wasn't quite represented in the movie. <laughs> I don't know, man. When he went to practice the first day and the rest of the team was told right. to do three hours of drills and he was like, I'm going to... I'm supporting them. I'll do three hours of layups and cool jumpers on the other side of the court. I was like, this is not earning. They could have cut this scene and gone straight to the next scene where he's actually doing the drills with the guys. Like, I'm not quite sure why this is here. Can I, can I just jump? I want to jump to the most important scene in the movie, which is wait, wait, which one? Oh no, no. You'll know which one. It's uh, what I would call the NBA version of Pacino versus De Niro in Heat. And that is the restaurant scene between Alan Iverson and Yes. Which is, guys, I can't even keep it together. Which is, Joe Reed, keep rolling if you're alive. Which is... The single greatest bit of acting I've ever seen <laughs> from any athlete yes. ever. And I was and I was so happy watching this because these fucking two guys <laughs> nailed it. They nailed yeah, they it. Did. My only concern was as we get ready to mount a for your consideration awards campaign for this film and all the people involved in it. Okay, so Stefan Marbury is our push for <laughs> best actor. Do you push Iverson, wait, wait, wait. Iverson, Iverson best supporting. or Baron Davis for supporting? Iverson. I, I think I agree, Brad. I think Iverson was the best actor in this movie. Yes. He was so smooth. He was Alan. I, it didn't feel like he was reading or reciting lines. He was just talking shit to Stefan. So the scene is that they, well, there's a weird twist to this that Stefan is told he's supposed to meet an old friend out for dinner and, <laughs> sent and is sent out. And for some reason that's not explained in traditional Chinese garb to meet up with Alan Iverson, who is in, traditional Allen Iverson wardrobe and 
there's a conversation uh, where Stefan, and, and this fucks me up because I need to talk to Stefan and ask him if this happened. Where Stefan and Iverson are having a conversation, Stefan says, Hey, man, it's two years in China. It hasn't gone very well. I'm bouncing. And Iverson strangely replies with, Hey, man, you might want to stay here. They might build a statue of you. Not uh. like, Hey, man, this is easy money. Uh, you might win a championship, but like, Hey, if, if you fuck around in China for a few more years, they're going to probably bronze you. Um, and then there's a little bit of a conversation. And this is what me, maybe makes me think it's real is that Iverson talks about the first time that he and Stefan faced off and says, I dropped 23 on you the, f- the first time we played. And Stefan says, no, you drop uh, 23 on my team. As it turns out, guys, preseason NIT tournament. Georgetown oh versus Georgia Tech in 1995. Georgetown indeed beat Georgia Tech Amazing. 94 to 72. Iverson shot nine for 16 from the floor. He finished with 23 points, six assists, and two steals. So at least someone did their fact checking, and I was impressed with that, which made me really want to believe that this conversation was real. Yeah, Gareth, can we can we My put this up? Can we put this up for I best think... documentary? Can we put this up for best documentary feature? Like, <laughs> well, I was actually going to say, I, I I bet they knew that that they didn't need a researcher on that. I bet those guys. I think they both have such crazy basketball minds. They probably honestly remember that. That scene was right. electrifying. Well, I want to see. Iverson as Nino Brown in a remake of New Jackson. Oh my God. I am so buying that Holy right now. God. Yep. I know. Huh. I knew you Adam, take my mortgage. Now, now, okay. Okay. Later <laughs> yes. guys, I had a real, I had a real question. Baron Davis is in this movie a lot. At the very beginning of the movie, they talk about a rival team signing Steve Francis. And then later, in the finals of like their Chinese basketball championship, Stefan's ding up against Baron Davis. And I got to wonder, is Baron Davis playing Steve Francis in this movie or is he no. playing Baron Davis? He's playing a fictional character, according to Wikipedia and verified by the Jersey, uh, a fictional character named Corbin Smith, who I researched <laughs> extensively. And never, <laughs> if Corbin Smith was an NBA player who once played with Marbury in the NBA and then played against him in China, he he doesn't, I, I can't, this is entirely this is, fictional. This is my favorite fucking movie of all time. Iverson, <laughs> if the, I, this, that's what, so I believe the Iverson scene was real, or at least I wanted to, because this was my version of Christmas. And, but after seeing... Uh. That scene with Corbin Smith uh, in a fight with Stefan Marbury, I don't know if any of this is real. Uh, first of all, Baron Davis is essentially <laughs> playing Johnny from Cobra Kai in The Karate Kid. Yes. And Baron Davis was great. Baron Davis missed, guys, I would say a generous amount of, of layups in the final uh, <laughs> in the final sequence. But the acting during that locker room scene and all the cussing made it well worth it. 
I wrote, bitch, next time we get on the court, we going to see y'all. And then <laughs> Baron Davis replies with, you're the punk, bitch. That's why your dad had a heart attack. <laughs> yeah. Why was that needed? Guys, this movie uh, had it that's all. That's harsh. This movie had it all. I have one word to wrap it up. Champion. <laughs> Champion. 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 Don't say that word. Champion. They might think they're going to win. Love is love. <laughs> Guys. Championship. We will we will post a link to this movie on our on our Twitter. We cannot recommend it enough. Right now, we're going to go to an awesome interview we did with Kelly Dwyer. You remember Kelly from his really great NBA coverage that he's done for a number of outlets over the years for a long time at Yahoo's Ball Don't Lie uh, site, which is one of my favorite verticals uh, in terms of covering the NBA. Uh, Kelly's got a really unique voice, a really unique perspective on the league, and he's just started his own subscription service, uh, The Second Arrangement. Well, unbeknownst to me, <laughs> the second arrangement is also a reference to Steely Dan, uh, who is is a band that Kelly has a lifelong uh, passion for. Uh, we we get into it. Gareth and he are uh, are really big fans, uh, you know. And 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 now's a good time to be talking about the band after after Walter's passing. So you know, we break it all down. Uh, you know, they're they're sort of category def- uh, defying uh, style. Uh, you know, their best songs. Uh, the, you know, why you don't have to apologize for loving them, <laughs> and uh, maybe even a little bit of their connection to uh, hip hop if you can believe that. So stick around. It's a really fun interview. And after that, we will be back to give you our distractions. I'm excited to see the new the new site, The Second Arrangement. And I know that there's a lot of talk about the new model of journalism, subscription-based, all this other stuff. So how did you decide to make the jump into the the current model that you have? And I guess how exciting are you to sort of break the mold and and be one of these pioneers going out and and trying this out to see if we can make a you know make an entirely new way to look at the industry right now? It feels incredibly exciting. I, I should be. It's fall. I'm dealing with a cold. I'm overworked and underslept and all that. It's 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 great. It feels natural. I. I uh, you know, Yahoo let me write whatever I wanted to write. Yahoo never said anything about clickbait, but just the habits of the times make it so you, you know, maybe I wasn't writing clickbait, but you can't help but consider that and lean on that when you're, you know, just throwing yourself against the wall every day. And it's a dangerous thing to put myself out there, but I'm I'm so happy to put myself out there with my own site on my own terms, you know, showing the effort that I'm putting in and, and hopefully giving people a distraction, which is, you know, what this is supposed to, to be. We're, we're getting on the internet every day to take us away from something, whatever that is. And, you know, let's make it a little more streamlined and a little more a la carte and a little, you know, more to our liking and, and a lot more fun. Yeah. I mean, and, you know, I love your. I love the uh, behind the box score. I, I guess I ask you, what is your routine like during the season? Because you're you're breaking down pretty much every game on the slate <laughs> every night. Like, what what's your life like? It's my life is awesome. My life is fantastic. <laughs> if people let me do it, I've had to you know to this point a, a, an absolute charmed existence, even if it's a sports on a sports writer's budget. 
um, I'm basically getting, I'm, I'm with the new site, I'm getting back to just writing about what I'm already watching, which are these games. I'm not going to try to, as I asked, to be shoveled into this sort of 9-to-5 existence that Yahoo, at my request, let me get into before. I'm not going to do that anymore because I know this is the way to do it. I get up at night and I watch games, and, and then I'll usually take a little break during the midnight. That's sort of like my afternoon nap, and then I'll recharge overnight and i'll write about games and i'll watch them on you know crystal clear high definition on leak past on, on my laptop or on my phone or on my television and i'll crack wise about them and i'll read what other people are saying about the games and i'll try to sidestep all the you know the the things you've already seen on your phone you don't need me to talk about the highlights that just happened we're just going to get a continual flow in emails and episodes from day to day of, of where I'm at with my relationship to this league and how these games that I watch, which are a ton of them. And now I'm not going to just watch them and just use that stuff for the next day. I'm going to get up after 90 minutes and start to write about it as soon as I can uh, you know, get the chance. Well, it's awesome, man. And, and we want to do our part to promote by now transitioning to a, an interview with you that has nothing to do with the NBA sports or any, anything like that at all. We're going to talk Steely Dan well, no, I mean, like, nothing says you launched your own new NBA site, like doing an interview about a band named after a dildo. I mean, like, that is a seamless transition if there ever was one. It's a, it's a marital aid. It's a marital aid, and, and it's, it's, you know, it's a literary <laughs> one. So that, that gives it... Yeah, exactly. But I think it takes it beyond the... Uh, the sort of things uh, you know one might buy off of uh, Exit 240 on Interstate 65 and somewhere in Indiana. What uh, what's your history with the band, uh, Kelly? What, when did you first sort of get into them? And I guess how would you best sort of define your 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 fandom to our audience? Ooh, it's it's and it's it's an obsession without letting it. Uh, uh, you know, no one's getting married in Steely Dan costumes. It's it's a college freshman obsession <laughs> gone wrong. Everyone sort of grows out of their college freshman stuff, hopefully by the end of college. But, uh, you know, I, I was on an accelerated program, to borrow a, a phrase, uh, uh, and I was asked to leave college in no time at all. So I never really was uh, disputed <laughs> of the notion of, of enjoying this band and, and uh, you know, trying to uh, let their sort of wiggy ways infiltrate you know, uh, just everything that, you know, it's, it, I can't help but bring them up. They, they have seven albums, I think from the seventies and two from, you know, the aughts and, and they're just, they've just been a part of my life without, you know, having me go on the road and see every show where I'm not dominating every message board. I'm just a guy that knows a ridiculous amount of Steely Dan in a way that has it lend itself into his real life which is they kind of have even though they're known for being sleek and over the top and and gorgeous and pristine they sort of have a diy attitude about them that as someone that was well versed in in punk ideology by the time he even got out of junior high uh you know i found able footing in both camps with steely dan it was still you know, kind of a middle finger who was just, uh, you know, wrapped in, wrapped in a cloth cap. Walter Becker really uh, recently died. And a couple of friends and I went deep down the Steely Dan well and breaking them down. And when you talk about that ethos, this is like punk rock was a very uh, handmade way of making music and 
they they seem to approach DIY in a different way. They were I was saying to Brad yesterday on the phone, uh, Steely Dan kind of approached making music as uh, artist as creative director, you know, and that they would they were not above writing the songs and then just bringing in a host. <laughs> excuse me, fighting off a cold, um, a host of session musicians to play the songs better. It was an entirely new way of making music that. When you think about it, it was like, oh, that is every rapper or rap producer that came later. Um, so they really were a, I don't know, they, they, they kind of crossed all genres and ways of making music in that way that you describe. What, what album was your gateway drug? I mean, for me, it was Asia and listening to rap music. And then I, I dove in from there. Um, so I have a very, I have a very simple in. But yeah, so what? Which was your gateway? Well, I mean, that's not simple because that's a whole lifetime of experience. I mean, that to to, to discredit going in the back way of a sample. I mean, that's that's not fair. We we all have to get to <laughs> Chuck Berry somehow. We all have to get to right. to television somehow. We all have to get to Dick Cavett somehow. We all have to get back. This, so we can't. We, let's you know we can't kill even if we're doing it at age twenty seven or thirty five or whatever. We can't dismiss how we get there because if it makes us warm, then then it's all good. It was it was Asia. It was Asia, an album I'd heard a million times before. I was a, my I was a classic rock kid. Also, my parents were stealing mm-hmm. Anthem, although they weren't freaks. I'd heard Prince yep. of Logic. I'd heard Asia before. I'd heard Royal Scan before. I'd heard Countdown. I tried to play guitar along to them and was just hoping. I thought it was blues, but it wasn't. <laughs> I thought it was country, but it wasn't. I could not keep up. I put them aside. There's another wonky band. You know, great, awesome, respect them, but they're just another one of those bands, like Traffic, like all these other bands that I liked, and I was just sort of finding my way in the 90s, and then, you know, the, the, genuinely the day before I went off college freshman year, I uh, found a couple, I, I taped all my parents' LPs on the cassette, because I was looking at my LPs with me, <clears throat> go off oh, man, into that the, is the awesome. last album I taped. And put on a B side oh, cool. because that's where I regarded it. It was the B side next to a Hot Tune album, and then headphones, freshman yeah. year, and it was over. It took me someplace that I wanted to be, and I still don't know where that place is. But God darn it, I'm going to try to find it. They're famous, especially Asia. Asia is known for our listeners. Like if you go to an audio file setup, Asia might be the first album that a crazy audio file plays to show you how great their stereo setup sounds. It's noted for its pristine recording and um, everything was mastered to perfection. At the same time, it, it can feel, it's been, it's been said of the album that it can feel cold um, and detached in that way. I have to say that over the years, and I think maybe some of this has to do with aging and your views on relationships and sex and cynicism kind of change, uh, Steely Dan's music has only gotten warmer for me and made more and more sense as I've gotten older. Have you found that your relationship has changed in that way as you've aged with it? Oh, certainly. I, I, I'm the living embodiment of the, of the, I mean, I don't want to go too far into this, but like <laughs> the Deacon Blues guy is a doofus. The Deacon Blues guy's an idiot. Right. I, I mean, right. Walter Becker told me that when I was nine. No, no, he he did not tell me that when I was 19 on the original version of the Asia VHS tape that I had to get from Australia and have mixed <laughs> over to it was played on U.S. 
anyway, I, I was, you know, kind of living that and thinking that and ignoring all the warning signs. And then, yeah, as you mm-hmm. grow older, it's not just about hearing the albums a bunch of times. It's just realizing what either side is coming with to the table when they put these songs together, what sort of embarrassments they're going to try from one another, and what they're going to try to hide from the rest of the world. These are two guys that don't want to put themselves out there, and there they are. Right. And not only are they putting themselves out there, they're letting every single one of those ideas come out and be listened to in excruciating detail by these guys who have seen and done and heard it all before from Aretha to whomever else, and, and, and they'll put themselves out there for that groove, for that fade-out. And mm-hmm. how can you not appreciate that sort of uh, attention to, to, some, to the one thing you love? They're a tough band to fit into the neat and tidy classifications that we love to do with, with musicians. I mean, how would you describe what genre they they really fit in or, or do you feel like the appeal of the band is, is the way that they blend styles and maybe defi- defy those easy categorizations? Yeah, it's, it's, it's unique and, uh, uh, it, it defies, cate- it does, it, it defies categorization. I, I'm okay with all the, you know, the, they do fit in classic rock. They do fit in yacht rock terms. I don't think I've had a, a wonderful relationship with those fantastic yacht rock guys that there are maybe like a half dozen yacht rocky steely dance songs. Their most yacht rocky one is is the one about heroin. The yacht Walter Becker wrote it as absolute worst. Um, I they're they're un, I I wouldn't I don't know how to get people into them. It, you just it, it happens, and if it happens at forty two or twenty two or nineteen or eighteen, it happens, and they're a strange thing. And I'm also la- not laughing down my sleeve at people that haven't gotten it, man. I, it, it, it's they're they're a weird band, and I wouldn't know where to start outside of just coming over and and maybe not listening to it the first time with someone, but maybe like the eighth time and just trading lines off of it. it there's, it's so naughty, and there's so much arcane love by people that don't know what love is yet, working through their 20s and 30s and then 40s, mm. just figuring it out in more and more literal details as they move along and what they want to reveal to people, not only through their lyrics, but also just in the, in the lines that they're playing on their instruments, what they allow themselves to play on their album, track by track, who they're playing off of, when they do decide that they're going to play a synth solo or a guitar solo to knock someone like Chuck Rainey out of the bass chair to go, I'm going to plug my bass that I've had for 12 years directly into the board and get rid of that billion-dollar guy to move my... You know, that, that what they allow themselves... You know, what they let get out there at this point, you know, maybe it's because of the permanence thing with Walter. I don't know. I feel like I had that in, in 2007 when I was watching him play, you know, in sheds all across the, the plains. I, it, there's just something that I'm still trying to reveal it uh, nearly two decades later, and I'm, I'm happily still finding my way toward the end of this band. That's I love the way you put that about, like... They are a band in my experience that has rewarded longer journeys and discovery. As I said before, the, the meanings of the songs shift and change. And I went through a period in my late 20s, early 30s, where I was working a lot of live remote sporting events. And every overweight, ponytailed, 50-something audio guy would play Steely Dan every Saturday in the broadcast truck when we were setting up for an NFL game. And I grew to really hate them. 
because they just became the living embodiment of these dudes from the 70s. And I think there was something about, like, man, are we still stuck on this? But, is that a clavinet? Is that a synth? What is that? Well, how do you think, coming from the other side, how do you think every kid that's had to schlep hung over to, to a terrible, uh, you know, uh, working the sides or, or maybe being on the staff or working the lights at any club in America, some guy who's in a band who's 21, 22, who's maybe getting to do like a loadout gig and, and move some amps for a, for a club, and with either load in or load out, there's that p- same ponytail guy cranking up gaucho, <laughs> and you're 22 and you're hungover, and you don't get it. And what is with saxophones? It just sounds so much like New York and... Uh, you know, that, that's what the other side has to go through. There are so many reasons to not like this band, and I get every one of them. I'm not going to waste any more time trying to explain it away because, uh, you know, time is precious and these albums sound good. What are the, what are the albums you come back to most? Because uh, I spent some time exploring most of it. When Becker died, I put Asia on immediately uh, just because it was my gateway drug. Then went back to Can't Buy a Thrill. By the way, Do It Again is way up there for one of the strangest songs ever released as a first song, first album. Um, it's They're really pretty much laying out who they are right away. And if you're not into it, there's the exit. Uh, With a song that sounds absolutely like nothing they'd ever do again. They had Denny Diaz Diaz, how I can, we still don't know how to say his last name, play an electric sitar as a joke to kind of make fun of that sort of green tambourine sort of AM radio stuff that was going on a couple years ago. Mm-hmm. They were having so much fun with this right from the beginning, and God bless the 70s, it was a hit. Yeah, and, and what's weird is like that's my favorite of their songs, which I, I, I know probably makes me sound like totally basic, Um but I, I would argue that the the intro of that song is one of the most iconic sort of musical riffs out there, and I, I'm a big fan of of those types of I don't know I, I love I love to to really kind of break down in my mind like you know that the inner rancor in me that says like oh what's the best intro to a song and this and that I just feel like that song really holds up in that conversation in terms of it it's it just grabs you from the first few beats. And you're kind of like, all right, I'm going to follow this along and just see where it goes. I don't know what it is about it that I love so much. Anything can grab you. Anything grabs us, man. Keychains grab. Anything can get in our way and get blinded. Any risk can grab you. This one, you don't reach for the dial, even though you heard that in your parents wherever. You heard that in your aunt's car. You heard that on a disc. You heard that song forever ago, and, and you're not changing it. And, and that's the thing that I have I've yet to figure out with this band. And, uh, uh, yeah, I, I forgot where I was going to go with, with, with the albums to come back to. It's impossible because I'm still working my way th- through them. Uh, I mean, there is, the obliqueness is, is not part of it. I'm not a fan of them because they're obscure and they left things yet to figure out. It's just, as you grow older, you figure out where these men, <laughs> I'm sorry, it's all men in this studio, uh, are coming yeah. from as they... You know, as they stave off this, they're all boys. And, and for us that are sort of mixing this in, indelicate mix of this progeria that we seem to be born with that allowed us this sort of maturity at an early age, but yet we're now in our adult years doing childish things, playing with instruments. You know, as we try to comprehend that in my own life, writing about the same thing that I was writing about when I was eight, nine years old, writing about basketball, yeah, they're figuring that on their own on wax and to me to watch that out in real time, especially when there's paranoia and, and depression and sometimes drugs involved, 
it hasn't gotten old, and it's been since uh, since the fin de siècle, which is another phrase they taught me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, what you have you have children, correct? I've seen you mention this I, on your Twitter feed. I do. I have an amazing fifteen-year-old, about to be sixteen-year-old stepdaughter, and a uh, same and all those many words soon to be fifteen-year-old stepdaughter as well. They're yes, two amazing young ladies that have been with me uh, for uh, a dozen years. Okay, so that's perfect. 15, 16 years old. You're nearing the time of Steely Dan introduction. How do you plan, if you haven't already, what will be your gateway drug to them on the Dan? Well, no, that's like, that's like introducing them to, to boiled water in this household. That's, that's, got it. Okay. <laughs> introduction was, there is no, there's no, it's not, it's not the, you know, the 29th, the, you know, anniversary of the four song EP that they need to sit down in the comfy chair and listen and, and, you know, maybe hot box with stepdad. No, there's none of that in this house. That happened long ago. That happened when we had to explain to them why mom and Kelly were coming home a little late the next afternoon because they were up in Chicago <laughs> and the Ford Focus going to a Steely Dan show that left their bank account at nil. I mean, that, that, happened, that happened a long time ago, and, uh, you know, long story short, they're not interested. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, let me tell you guys, my, inter- awesome. my introduction to Steely Dan, because, you know, my dad was just not into music growing up, and then he moved out anyway, and then my mom <laughs> was into show tunes. So, like, that was the extent. I had to kind of find my own way when it came to both sports and music. My introduction to Steely Dan was being enraged at the 2001 Grammys when Two Against Nature beat the following the following artists for album of the year: Beck, Midnight Vultures, Eminem, The Marshall Mathers LP, Radiohead, Kid A, and Paul Simon. You're the one. And I remember that like the the Entertainment Weekly style backlash of the Grammys are broken, they're not current. <laughs> like why is Steely Dan winning this? And yet, you know, again, as you as I started to sort of you know be exposed to the band in my adulthood because I was in college back then, but you know, it, just being more and more exposed to the band, I became more, I guess, aware of their cultural impact and 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 their longstanding sort of influence in so many of the artists that we appreciate today. But I do think it's I I can relate to the idea of it, you know it's not necessarily. I do. Th- I do wonder what the future generations are going to think about the band looking back, and w- at what point of their life will they discover it, or could they discover it, and and really find that relevance? You know. Well, that I mean, a you're spot on. But to answer your last question, you know, if the sun is going brown, if if, if things are, uh, you know, if if it's time to fill up your cart and and head to the checkout lane, is I think Steely Dan is going to provide the you know the proper soundtrack for. Uh, both the, the shopping aspect of it and also what we're listening to in the getaway car. So future generations can expect a whole lot of rollicking tunes as we, uh, you know, <laughs> go try to find our hut end of the, uh, end of the line here. Um, in terms of, I mean, I, I was, I should have been in college too when that happened. That, that should have happened in my junior year of college. I, I was a couple months away from the Grammys night. I was a couple uh, months away from turning 21. I was living in a basement apartment that I could not afford in Chicago, stringing together dot-com jobs, trying to work on the NBA. I had, I think, like three beers left in my fridge that my dad bought me before he left, so I didn't turn 21 left. Then I was, like, nursing, waiting for that night while I'm flipping around watching the first Grammys episode because, again, I was punk rock kid. Uh, You know, when Nirvana came out, I was like, no, not cool. Like, I was beyond that when that happened. Wow. 
So wow, here I am, I'm 20, and I'm flipping away from my work job that I need badly to watch Bette Midler and Stevie Wonder stumble their way through an envelope. And I'm seeing that thing, and I'm hearing those things go, and I'm, you know, pumping my fist around, I'm drinking the beer that my dad left me. And, and uh, yeah, I mean, that's... Yeah. It, it just reminds you of where you're supposed to be. If you're not there with them, do that with someone else. It's all this Star Wars thing. I haven't seen a single Star Wars that I can remember. All the Star Wars stuff hasn't taught us anything. If all this acceptance of sports and dorksum and all this is just to be cool with where you're at. And don't be shamed out of it. Mm-hmm. If you still have a Bob Marley poster, go with it. If it's your thing and you can find something that's new and fresh and not forced in it, then run with it. I'm not doing this because it's a thing. I'm doing it. I have to talk myself out of playing them, this band. And they're not putting any other albums out. And, right. you know, that's my only struggle. And that should be your only struggle with, with, with things you enjoy. At this point, how do you look back at all those albums as a complete body of work? Like, you can do a different sort of reassessment now. That, okay, this is complete. This is what we will have had from Steely Dan. To you, what are your high points? Again, I've like, what do you come back to? What songs stand out to you? What what songs caused the pivot? You know, like, how do you evaluate their complete body of work now that it's done? Um, it's evolving, and to be honest, I had a bit of a head start on this when. You know, in 2003, when I'm 22 and, you know, wiping flakes from my nose, they put out an album called Everything Must Go, (laughs) you know, basically tore under that ideal. So we kind of had a head start on this. Um, It's evolving. And it just, I just still, the more you put in, and by putting in, I, I don't mean, I don't mean, it's not work. It's me in the side yard with headphones on. Ask my kids that you know have seen me do this dumb stuff. If you put in, and it could be with anything, you're gonna find new new things to unwind, and that that's where I keep going. Why did they get out of the way and let this guy play? Why is there the mm-hmm. crazy musical element? They, you know, go to YouTube, and the, the most watched thing these days is this Glean Earrings instrumental. It's just a slideshow. It's all they have of Becker and Fagan, Becker and Fagan. They didn't play on that song. The big instrumental is just other guys they brought in just to get their dream team together to go nuts on this weird song about God knows what. And then you have the rest of your life to figure out, A, what is God knows what, and then B, why did they get to that place? And that is still fun. I don't know if it's going to be that way in 20 years. Maybe the, the shelf life, <laughs> it, this is a quarter century. But, uh, you know, I'm, I'm going down with it, man, and I'm having a good time, and I'm doing it at appropriate volumes. <laughs> I love that. I'm going down with it. Let me ask you one of those annoying questions just to kind of tap into your uh, NBA brain, since I, I, since I love the way you look at the league. Is there a player or franchise parallel with the career or legacy of Steely Dan? Like, is there someone that you would look at and say, that has a, their game reminds me of... Um, you know, however obscurely of the progression of um, of this band or, or, or the way that Steely Dan just sort of approached their craft? Because the ego gets in the way with sports. It's so hard to find that sort of, you know, in sports you still have someone like Jerry West who at age God, 70-something is jumping to another team because he's not getting paid enough by the Golden State Warriors. <laughs> and that's right. no fault of his own because he's still fighting demons that he, that he was hit with in 1962 
that, and he was the good guy in 1962. He was the one that got the privilege in 1962, and he still got the raw end of the deal. So with sports, you have all these people still fighting fights for all these years. And, you know, when Stevie Dan made an album, they would take off. They would disappear. Cam and Crow's must-read thing after Asia comes out. No one, not even Irving Azoff, the man who made the Eagles such a ubiquitous hell in our lives, is trying to find Stevie <laughs> Dan and can't find him. They just, they put it out there, and they left it there. And, you know, there's not a lot of that in sports because you still have to shake hands after the game. And I'm not saying these guys were uh, bad sports about it, but, you know, mixing, you know, basketball, it's not jazz. But, you know, you can listen to Steely Dan while you're watching basketball, and it, it fits. It fits in lockstep, and, and I'd, 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 hmm. I'd encourage green earrings off the Royal Scam. That, that's a good one for games both slow and fast. That just fits right in. Love it, man. I love that. And to wrap here, speaking of basketball, uh, you know, we're excited about the new site, uh, the second arrangement. Where where can people go, Kelly, to to get subs- subscription information and, and and check it out? Do you want them to direct to your Twitter, or or what's the best uh, what's the best place for them to uh, to, to find you? The best place is probably the Twitter. For now, I'm going to be the first guy that's trying to kind of try to build a competence, uh, you know. Uh, uh, able to make the bill subscription uh, set up off of Twitter. So go to KD on hoops, Twitter slash KD on hoops. Uh, and uh, the website is the second arrangement. And if you keep swinging by, by the end of this week, uh, free readers will have found out the Steely Dan connection uh, uh, to the title of the second arrangement. Uh, avid listeners, I'm sure, are actually probably surprised that we haven't gotten into that. But I will leave that to readers to swing by tsa.substack.com. To, uh, to to take in some steely offerings that also have some uh, day-to-day basketball talk along with it. Uh, TSA.subsec.com. And, uh, yeah, there's there's going to be a lot of talk about the band that uh, obviously still moves me quite a bit. Yeah, did we just dribble the ball off our leg out of bounds at the at the in the final seconds here with a uh, Garrett? Garrett, did, was this? I didn't realize the the connection because I'm not as big a fan as you. So, where, Garrett, where were you on this? The last album was Gaucho. Uh, it was recorded when they decided to move back to New York City with all the riches that they'd attained in Los Angeles and get it right. They were going to get the funk of the royal scam mixed with the lushness and, and perverseness of, the, of Asia, and they were going to get it right, and they were going to drive it home. And they mixed in New York, they go to New York, and it just all falls apart for various reasons. But they have the second arrangement. It's the best song on this album, this mess of an album. And late one night after the song has been taken care of, they're, rec- they're getting it ready for a playback. They're getting it ready for the boys to saunter into work at 4 a.m. to hear you know, the latest version of what the sound song's like. And according to many secondhand sources, uh, a engineer accidentally, instead of making a safety copy, just erased a good 75% of the original copy. So the song, the hallmark, the crackling, sparkling gem off this follow-up to the trillion cell in Asia was now mostly erased, gone forever. Uh, Donald Fagan came to the studio a couple hours later. The engineer, Gary Katz, who I'm trying to get for discussions, I'm having email discussions at the Second Range to talk about this very subject. Uh, the producer told Donald Fagan uh, of the erasement and uh, erasure and... Uh, he wordlessly walked out of the studio, didn't say a word. They attempted to record it a couple of times, didn't work out. 
some bootlegs are out there. In a uh, 1999 AOL chat, uh, I asked Walter Becker if they've ever tried to record it or play it live. He told me that there was a chance, however slight. Uh, they didn't re-record it. They played it once in concert in 2011, a concert that I did not attend. Uh, it's a beautiful song. It's If anyone wants to look up the lyrics, it is apt to whatever part of your life you want to spiral into whatever line you just took in, whether it's the last line and you're reading it off a website, whether you're hearing it and it's making sense, take it in, listen to it a couple of times, 1939, 49, whatever age you're at, that song can make sense mm. to you. Scope it out, YouTube it, have some fun. That's awesome, man. Uh, great story, and uh, oh. that's on us <laughs> for not not leading with it. But I'm glad I'm glad that we wrapped with it. <laughs> this has been such an honor to talk about. I mean, who else gets? To, uh, I'm I'm lucky to be able to talk on a Sunday morning about something that's brought me. That's why I do what I do, and I know you guys do what you do. It's just about bringing stuff to the people, trying to you know let them know about uh, you know what takes care of us. And we are. Back in the sports world, athletes, coaches, media, they're always told, stop being a distraction, stop being interesting, stop liking things that aren't game film. We think that is hogwash. Life is just work and the things that distract us from work. So on this show, we break down what's distracting us every week. Gareth, why don't you go first in Brooklyn? Uh, so I guess I'm almost, I feel like I'm doing everything one segment ahead tonight. Uh, but I mentioned my distraction already. I'm going to talk about why I have been abstaining from Twitter and taking a social media hiatus. And in doing so, I'm going to get into my shout out, but I have taken a two week break from Twitter and I've found it incredibly mentally healthy and our president will just have like whole, full diaper tantrums and I have no part in it. It just, it has no bearing on my life. I don't hear about it or I don't hear about it till days later. And I'm like, Oh man, that must've been crazy. And I find it so freeing. And I've come back on Twitter a couple times. Like when the New York thing happened, the uh, terrorist attack happened, I got on cause it's still a valuable news source, but it's really helped me to, I also got on to retweet our podcast link with Stephen White. I really liked that episode, um, but it, it's starting to use Twitter more like a tool, like it was meant to be used and not like I'm Neo hooked up to the matrix, just watching ones and zeros and injecting pure information into my eyes all day, every day. Um, so I've really enjoyed that. And the reason I did it was, uh, as I mentioned uh, on Twitter, a friend of mine, Dave Bree passed away. And uh, so this is where I'll get into my shout out. He was an editor at Complex and Vibe and XXL and was, let's put it this way. He was the rock critic for Ego Trip magazine, which is just like, to me, it's the coolest thing you can say about somebody like this underground rap zine that ended up being what gave rise to Vibe and XXL he was the guy that wrote about rock music and pavement for that rap mag for that magazine. And he was, he was a good friend. We spent a lot of time together at the end of his life in particular. He really helped my writing and he was really encouraging. He was a great editor. And so when he passed the outpouring of love for this guy was just really overwhelming to me. Um, 
I'm sure all of you know, if you're listening, you know, Rembert Brown, Rembert posted a be- like a beautiful tribute, basically saying like Dave Bree put me on. Like he gave me my start. He greenlit my first few pitches that got me started. Shea Serrano, friend of pod, uh, gave a rest in peace. Shout out to Dave. He just, he was a guy who had a huge impact on people's life. And, and after I read all that, I just, it, frankly, it put such a good taste in my mouth about Twitter and social media in general that I kind of wanted to walk away for a little while and actually think about it in a positive light rather than being this like gaping maw of screams and agony that we see most days. So that is my RIP Dave Bree shout out. I'll do my distraction in one minute. It might make you laugh and just brighten up your week. Sure. Uh, you remember you remember how I went into a Prometheus movie Reddit chat room <laughs> frenzy in a couple weeks before that movie came out? So it happened again, and it's uh, <laughs> it's with the Last Jedi guys. I have uh, I had like a an insanely brutal couple months at work, and it finally let up for about three days in a row, and I just. Started in on the Last Jedi trailer analysis. I got into the idea of the Gray Jedi. I got into Force Trees, the Book of Wills, uh, the backstories of of Snoke. Is he Darth Plagueis? Is he an ancient being? I got into the backstories of Rey. Is she Obi-Wan's granddaughter, Luke's daughter? Yeah, what are people saying about Rey? Okay, so Rey, Hmm. they're saying she's either Luke's daughter... She's Obi-Wan's grandfather. There's a theory that says that she says to Luke, you're my father. And he goes, no, you're my father. You're Anakin reborn. If that's it, I'm fucking out like midi chlorians, man. I'm just like, I'm walking out of that room. No way. Uh, There's also a theory that Rey is, um, that she's just the, the daughter of four sensitive like Jedi who might've been killed in the raid and Luke hid her away because she was, you know, whatever, uh, you know, there's idea that they're going to bring back more force ghosts. Maybe Obi-Wan's back in this one. Maybe, uh, Anakin's back. I've heard there's an, uh, Anakin's going to be a force ghost. Who's like half Anakin, half Darth Vader. That'd be kind of cool. But also heard that force ghosts can mm. die. Not really sure why that should be happening. Also unclear why Obi-Wan had to sit down as a ghost in Return of the Jedi. That's been my whole life wondering about that. And then, um, you know, look, I just want to say this. The trailer looked awesome. I think J.J. Abrams is not getting enough credit for making Star Wars feel like Star Wars again. Like, the prequels were so bad. Guys, can I just ask a question to everybody? Uh, Gareth, I'm going to start with you. Sure. Was the Starbrain movie better than the Star Wars prequels? Yes, I, yeah. I think all the prequels are garbage, and I, I don't like this revisionist theory that episode three is now good because it's the best of a bad run of movies. I think they're all terrible. Yeah, dude, this is the original Star Wars. That's Starberry versus the prequels. Adam, is the Starberry movie better than all three prequels? Y- y- yes, the Starberry movie actually made sense, and the acting was better. Oh, the Alan Iverson is way better than Hayden Christensen. Can we just uh, align on that? But Hayden Christensen, but in his defense, Hayden Christensen has gone on to, um, hmm. 
He was good in Shattered Glass. That's the only thing. Let me say this, guys. New rule on the show. On on rap albums, we always say there's a Skilo scale. Are you better than Skilo as a rapper? And in in acting, are you better than Hayden Christensen in the prequels? Can we agree on that? Yeah, we can agree on that. I would say Ivor or sorry, Marbury is better even than Natalie Portman was in those movies, and she's <laughs> yeah. a great actress. But that, how can you yeah. act to 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 that writing? Yeah, she was I, terrible. I don't agree with that because. Skilo on I wish I, w- I wish was a good rapper. Episode two of the prequels is the worst movie I've ever seen. I, I think it might be one of the worst movies ever made. Like, honestly, no joke, no hyperbole, no just not sports bullshit. I would rather watch the Starberry. Mo- I would watch the Starberry movie again before I watch the second episode of Star Wars. Yeah. The Attack of the Clones is one of the worst big budget movies ever. Uh, it, it's inexcusable. There's no rhyme or reason to it. There's no emotional stakes to it. It's awful. And Gareth, you and I saw the first Star Wars, and I like the prequel. And I went, I, I left, and I was like, yeah, yeah. And then two weeks later, we were just sitting around <laughs> Uptown Oxford, Ohio, small town Ohio, and I just go, God damn it, that movie was fucking dog shit. <laughs> like, <laughs> it took me like two weeks to admit it, man. Anyway, Adam. So I don't read a lot of fiction and I decided uh, to pick up a book while I was on my travels for a little escapism. And I noticed a cover of a book at the airport that said soon to be made into a Steven Spielberg movie. And I never read the book before the movie. So I picked up Ready Player One, which is a science fiction uh, novel that was written in 2011. Um, essentially, the plot is there is a kid uh, living in the who lives in the future and um, a kind of a not quite post-apocalyptic, but on the path that the Earth is going with the environment gone and fuel running out. What does that future look like, and what is the escape? And everyone on Earth has access to this virtual environment called the Oasis. And um, as part of the main plot of this is um, the the kid, the, the main protagonist, has a chance to win a contest to earn billions of dollars by competing in this contest to find these three magical keys within the Oasis. And it is truly a pleasure to not be reading something professional development or for personal growth, but rather uh, in the day with something that is true escapism. So I'd recommend the book ready player one to anyone listening. Yeah. We've talked extensively about this on this podcast with Becky Sauerbrunn with, uh, with, with Joe Reed. I've read the book. I reread it uh, in advance of the movie. I think, I think it's fine. I, I would say the book lacks detail where it needs it. It, it, um, there's scenes when they're like, Oh, I got on a bus from my hometown to Columbus and I hope I don't run into any bad roving gangs that like ruin these buses. And then he doesn't. And you're like, just write the scene where he like (laughs) evades them, you know? But I suppose if I was to hold that to that book, I should probably make Starberry's movie, make, uh, his dad, actually die on screen as opposed to like in a voiceover with him eating Vaseline on YouTube. (laughs) 
Yeah, I we really need to get Marbury on. I have questions, and I and in all seriousness, I know I, my role is to be the snarky one, but it really was well done. I just want to know how much of it is is real and how much of it, and and rightfully so, needed to be dramatized for the sake of Hollywood. Uh but but Iverson versus Strawberry on screen finally. Man. Amazing. Yeah. All right, Adam. I didn't even know they really actually knew each other. So Adam, any awesome. shout outs this week? Uh I wanna say shout out to our good buddy and faithful listener, Johnny from Idaho. He um he listens to the show. He's texted me in the past and he was the one who submitted the question. Um, I hope he doesn't mind me saying, but he was the one who submitted the question about uh, wearing the Pootie Tang Halloween costume. Oh, a trucker, trucker Johnny get, gets in touch with you directly. That's yeah, cool. Yeah, he, yeah, he, uh, he texted me to say, "Hey, man, thanks. You gave me a lot to think about." Yeah, where I live, quite frankly, there's not a there's not a ton of diversity, but yeah, I definitely would not wear that costume um, into a room full of black people. He also said he'd be happy to take me fishing, but he's usually busy working. So that's not going to happen. But one more shout out uh, to Drew Palin uh, at Gatorade, who listens faithfully to this show as well. He sent me a picture of him catching a very large muskie over the weekend and said he was still waiting for his shout out. So, Shout out to you, Drew Palin. I am looking forward to going fishing next spring. Can't wait, man. <clears throat> Can't wait. Any other shout outs, Adam? Well, as usual, I'd like to give a shout out to my boy Uzi, Def Jeff, Little Swanee, Meech, Ron Mack. And of course, the greatest angler of them all, my other cousin, Ron. And in the immortal words of the original and only Big Shack, booty rappers. Stay booty. Stay and also, <laughs> booty. It's not, it's not road, and also, love is love. And love is love. Thank you. But keep in mind... It's only one big shack. It is I, the originator, the dominator, the creator. Don't you ever call your name Big Shack. Last man who called himself Superman still ain't got no rings. Roadman Shack. Find me scraping the black card. I got a leak in the backyard. I got gators, got snakes in the backyard. Superman on a dock in the backyard. Even got a safe in the backyard.